Hello and welcome to the Food Safety Dish, a production brought to you by the Local Food Safety Collaborative. I'm your host, Catherine Kautner. The Local Food Safety Collaborative is a cooperative initiative established between the National Farmers Union Foundation and the FDA with the goal of providing training, education, and technical assistance to local food producers to ensure good food safety practices and compliance with the Food Safety Modernization Act. National Farmers Union is a grassroots farmer-driven organization that believes strong family agriculture is the basis for thriving communities. NFU's membership includes over 200,000 family farmers and ranchers across America. Farmers Union's grassroots structure promotes locally initiated policy priorities and educational topics established by their members. Learn more about National Farmers Union at www.nfu.org. Today, we will be talking about food safety risks and hazards that might be lurking in plain sight, how to spot things you maybe never noticed before, and how to mitigate these risks on your farm. I'm joined by our guests, Annalisa Holtberg and Laura Frerichs of Minnesota. Annalisa Holtberg is a statewide educator in food safety at the University of Minnesota Extension, where she has coordinated the on-farm GAPS education program since 2011. She leads Extension's educational efforts around the FSMA produce safety rule and good agricultural practices, working with small to large-scale fruit and vegetable farmers, farm-to-school programs, food hubs, and others to help producers understand and implement food safety on the farm and improve the quality and safety of fresh produce. Laura Frerichs co-owns and operates Loon Farm, a 40-acre organic farm in Hutchinson, Minnesota. Loon grows diversified produce for 175 household CSA, farm-to-school and local food shelves. 2023 will be their 19th year of farming. Laura is a farmer trainer for the PSA, FSMA trainings, and University of Minnesota's Extensions GAPS trainings. Annalisa and Laura, welcome to the Food Safety Dish. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Excited to have you here. It's nice to be here. Annalisa, what are some of the top food safety risks that you have seen on farms? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. Um, well, first off, I after being in this role for a long time, I will say that farms actually have really good food safety. Um, you know, a lot of it is fairly common sense, and our growers care deeply about providing healthful, safe food to their customers. You know, the last thing that they would want to do is have some sort of an outbreak, um, you know, for legal reasons and for, you know, just their kind of ethical reasons and the reason that they do what they do. Um, so it's amazing to me that the the balls that farmers juggle and they still maintain really good food safety. But, you know, over time, I guess I would say some of the major categories of things that are, you know, that tend to be more risky um, and, and challenges on farms would be post-harvest handling and, and washing of vegetables. So, 
pack sheds in general don't have to be super fancy, but whatever kind of surfaces you have and whatever kind of equipment you have, really making sure, doing your best to make sure that it's cleanable and sanitizable. So a lot of our growers maybe are repurposing equipment, really making sure that it is equipment that you can clean well. So if it wasn't intended for food, it might not be able to be cleaned very well. I've seen things like you know, cement mixers and things to clean potatoes because they didn't have a barrel washer. Well, you can't really clean a cement mixer because it's not intended to be cleaned really well um, to the level of something that would touch food. Um, And then just, I would say, generally washing a lot of things. This is kind of changing, but in general, just washing a lot of produce and then if they're doing that, that can, food safety risks can arise there, uh, not using a sanitizer can be a risk there. Um, And then in general, cleaning our our post-harvest equipment. I know that, you know, cleaning isn't why we got into farming, but doing the best that farms can do to really occasionally throughout the seasons clean with detergent and elbow grease, scrub all those totes out, clean them, rinse them, sanitize them. That can take a lot of time and, you know, labor is expensive and labor has been such an issue lately. So cleaning and sanitizing that those totes, the brush washers really rushing, like reaching inside the brush washer that can have tons of stuff kind of stuck in there. And then uh, other harvest equipment that can have lots of benefits like sanitizing for can kill the di- uh, plant diseases as well. Uh, that could be lurking on those tools. So that's a kind of an added benefit there. And then I guess just the other category would be the use of animal manures as soil amendments and livestock in general. So I see a lot of folks integrating livestock into their operations, which is great for lots of reasons. Soil health, it's a source of fertility, um, but it can also contain a lot of human pathogens. And so if you don't use it carefully, you can introduce risk and perhaps not even think about it. So I'd say that those are kind of some of the major risks that I've seen recently. Great. Thanks for sharing. Laura, as you have learned about food safety on the farm, has anything surprised you about places to watch for that you didn't always think about? And how have you taken steps to reduce some of these risks? Yeah, As we have learned more about food safety, I would say that every year we continue to make changes on our farm and keep kind of looking at our farm with this food safety lens. So some things that have kind of been a surprise to me or, or, you know, things that I've noticed that we've then changed our practices is thinking about, we we talk a lot about direct food contact surfaces. And I think that can be, you know, something that growers are like, well, that is, that's obvious, right? The areas where my produce is touching, I need to make sure that that's clean. But then I also think about the areas that my hands touch. So the steering wheel of our harvest vehicles and our golf carts, for example, or the trash can, or the compost bin, like places that I'm touching and that during my kind of harvest, wash and pack time. So when I'm handling produce and it's uh, going out to customers and we're talking about some of these 
uh, higher risk crops, right, that people are eating raw. I'm thinking about what are these kind of not direct food contact surfaces, but what what we talk about in the FISMA trainings as a zone two. So something that is not directly in contact, but close by that I may be touching with my hands. And so including those areas in our regular cleaning schedule. So thinking about, okay, once a week, we're washing our hand washing sink. We're making sure that that is clean uh, and somebody is delegated to do that. And it takes just a couple minutes. Washing down or wiping down the steering wheels of our harvest vehicles, wiping down the uh, trash can lid that we touch many times a day, making sure that the handles of our harvest knives are cleaned and sanitized as well. Um, so some of these areas that I think, you know, it's taken us a few years to kind of say, oh, yeah, like, actually, this is this is part of the system on our harvest, wash and pack days um, that we also need to think about keeping clean, right? We're not just focusing on this these direct food contact services, but looking a little bit at the whole system. So those are some of the, the changes that we have done. I will also say, I'm thinking back to when we first started farming 15 years ago. And, you know, frankly, there wasn't a lot of food safety awareness. It was just kind of starting to grow. And Annalise, I don't know when you started at the U of M, but I feel like it was around maybe 10 or 12 years ago that we really started to get more information as farmers about good agricultural practices. So before that, we would bring our pets. We had a farm dog. He would totally come out into the field with us. He'd be, you know, laying next to us while we were harvesting green beans and salad mix. And he would ride in our farm van sometimes as well. So, you know, pretty common from farms that I worked on, there were just cats and dogs around. They were in the greenhouse. They were in the hoop houses. And so that's totally changed on our farm. We we have cat-proofed our greenhouses and hoop houses so that they can't get in. We have a door on our packing shed so that our pets or any other wild animals can't come into our pack shed at night. Like what I like to say is you can still have pets on your farm, but it's just keeping them out of your fields and out of your pack shed and greenhouses where you're actually growing food and doing post-harvest handling activities. Great. Thanks so much for sharing. Annalisa, the same question goes for you. As, as you have worked with farms, what have you found are some of the most common places growers might miss? Yeah, thanks. Good question. And I would completely agree with Laura that overall, the general approach to food safety really has changed and improved. And I really like that idea of, you know, we know more, so we do better. Like, we, it's a slow improvement. It's There's no sense of, oh, everything was wrong before, and now everything's perfect or anything. It's just that we, as we learn more about the risks of fecal contamination, where does that fecal material come from? Humans? and animals. So let's target, you know, let's think about the pathways of how those things can get onto our produce and do our best to reduce the chances that it will get onto our produce. So it's not at all about eliminating it or, you know, never having a, 
an animal on the farm. You know, Laura has a dog. A lot of people have dogs and cats, totally fine, but doing our best to recognize that we're not actually having it in the growing area, for example, um, in the pack shed, that kind of a thing. So I think people have really gotten better about just kind of thinking through those risks. Um, I think some of the key areas that folks might not think about are some of those food contact surfaces that they can't see. So the inside of equipment, the inside of a brush washer, a barrel washer, they do not make those easy to clean, unfortunately. So um, thinking through those areas that you literally can't see and getting, asking your smallest person perhaps to get in there and scrub it in <laughs> or, you know, maybe um, retrofitting the equipment, changing it out, taking off sponges off of the brush washers because those are just nearly impossible to clean and they never dry out. Like their, their purpose is to absorb water. And I've heard people say that over the entire season, they don't grow, they don't dry out. So bacteria need water and nutrients and warmth to grow. And when they have those things, they're going to grow and they're going to grow exponentially. So the bacteria can and will grow in those areas where they have what they need. And I will say human pathogen bacteria, you know, uh, that can cause illness to us like salmonella, but also you're going to have other bacteria just grow that causes your produce to rot faster on the shelves and could also be spreading disease to your plants. So keeping those kind of post-harvest equipment clean. Uh, drains are another area that people might not think about. Drains on the ground, you know, on the floor of your pack shed, but also the drains in your sinks. So think about, I was at a farm a while ago that had a drain and it had a kind of a sub drain below the drain that it had one of those cranks that kind of stopped the water, but the water was allowed to go below the drain that you could pretty much get to and then be kind of down in this bottom drain that you turned with a lever. Um, and so when you stopped it, that water just sat in there and you really couldn't get down into that other area. But when it filled, the water was commingling. So whatever was down in that lower part was now in the entire sink. And it took some work, but we were able to take off that top drain that you could see and get down into that bottom one. And it was full of biofilms. It was just like slimy as all get out. So wherever you're seeing those biofilms build up, you definitely might have bacteria being trapped in there where it can slough off and get onto your produce. So just try to find those slimy things and, and get rid of it. Another thing that I can think of is just packing, packaging storage. So packaging is so expensive. So when we buy it, especially for wholesale customers, they almost always are going to ask for our packaging to be new. Um, and so those wax cardboard boxes, whatever they might be, the bags, just thinking about storing them in a way so that animals can't get on them. I've seen, you know, big, beautiful boxes of new um, boxes just kind of sitting out in the open and, you know, there's a good likelihood that a raccoon or something might be on there overnight. So really keeping those in a sealed area. And in some farms that I work with, they, that doesn't exist. They don't have a sealed area. They don't have an enclosed pack shed. So then we talk through, okay, what does that mean? Are they getting stored in a van or a in a cleaned out part of your garage? Um, you know, obviously not next to your oils and things, but just thinking about where that where that packaging might be stored to keep it safe. Um, and then if it is in a pack shed 
or a greenhouse or something, really trying to do your best to not have like seeds. I see a lot of people storing seeds or there's just like coals, there's just stuff on the ground. Like that's going to really give those rodents reasons to come on in. So keep, you know, think through what's in your pack shed and is there anything attracting rodents in? You know, sometimes people will say, oh my gosh, I have such a mouse problem. It's like, well, okay, what's what's bringing them in in the first place? And sometimes it's just the season where they want to go in and find some warmth, but there might also be a food source or water that's attracting them in. Another thing is coolers and in general, like the fans in coolers and the ceiling. Sometimes people kind of forget to look up. So making sure our coolers are working. Um, and I know a lot of us aren't even lucky enough to have on-farm cooling, but if you are, um, you know, making sure to clean it regularly throughout the season and then think of that fan, disassembling it occasionally or otherwise just really trying to clean it and then make sure that it isn't, um, there isn't condensate dripping down onto the produce. I know depending on humidity and kind of temperature, you might definitely have condensate dripping, but if it is, try to fix it and definitely don't let it drip onto produce because things like listeria can breed in that cold, wet environment. Drip down onto the produce where it most definitely could be a risk and you you just don't want to give someone a listeriosis and you don't want listeria to start breeding in your cold packing environments. Um, if you've ever worked in food processing, they are just they're hounds for listeria. They will go and just like, a, you know, a terrier to a rat and just find listeria in their processing houses and do their very, very best to eradicate it because once it gets hold, it's a bugger. So thinking through um, those kind of cold storage. And then finally, again, I guess I would just say the livestock. I see a lot more producers integrating livestock into their farms in Minnesota. Um, we have a lot of efforts for soil health and a lot of that does include using animals again, which is a good thing generally. Although I would say a lot of, a lot of my peers uh, do a lot of soil health work and they'd say, first of all, test your soil, make sure you actually need it because your phosphorus levels can go kind of crazy if you are adding manure and manure. Um, but if you are using it, know its treatment level. So it's a, if it's a fully treated product like Sustain, you're, that's a very low risk product. You probably can apply it with no sort of intervals in between when you apply it and when you harvest that product. But if it is a raw or just kind of passively aged manure that might be of sitting in a in a pile out back or in someone's barn and they clean it out in the spring and they say, hey, you know, I got a bunch of manure for you. Do you want for your farm? And you say, sure. But then you put it on in, you know, whenever the ground breaks up and you're able to apply it. Um, and then you plant some lettuce and then 40 days later, you're harvesting some lettuce that isn't enough, likely enough time for those pathogens to break down. So uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act right now is kind of defers to the National Organic Program guidelines of 90 or 120 days between application of that raw untreated product and harvest of, of the products. So 90 days if produce is not touching the soil, 120 days if it is touching the soil, like a cantaloupe or an untrellis cucumber. So in Minnesota, that definitely means applying it in the fall. Again, that's for an untreated products like manure that might just be passively aged and kind of sat out and didn't go through that the actual validated treatment process, which includes the turning and the temperature. 
Um, and the reason is that if it just sits in a pile, I've heard it all. I've heard people say, oh, no, I, if it sits for five years, it's uh, fully treated. If it sits for two and a half, it's uh, like uh, people have every, you know, and it's like the reality is, no, it doesn't. It sat there and it heated up in the middle. I bet it did. I bet it got real hot. It probably even was steaming. But on the edges, it's it's cold. And, you know, you can see there's photos of kind of like the heat mapping of these piles and the edges are definitely definitely not heating up as much as the center. So if there was pathogens lurking on the outside, which there probably was, remember in the pack shed, we're talking about like microscopic amounts of poop. Now we're talking about literally a pile of poop. So the outsides are pretty cool and the pathogens likely didn't actually um, die off in at the same rate that they did in the center. So all that being said, use that stuff, but um, use it carefully and if it isn't fully treated wait that at least 90 to 120 days so generally that means that fall of pie and then work it in well and then even use a cover crop would be even better you know really good for your soil and then you're building those soil microorganisms which actually there's been evidence to say that better beneficial microbes are going to do some benefit in outcompeting those pathogenic ones Great. Yeah. Wow. So many places to look out for and some definitely very hidden more so than others. <laughs> the drains under drains. Great. Well, Laura, so how have you changed your business since you implemented more food safety management on your farm? And what have you had to reconfigure or change in that process? Yeah. When I was thinking about this question and I started to write a list, I really realized how much we have changed. And as I mentioned earlier, it's been an evolving process. So, you know, every year I see something that I may want to improve. A lot of the changes we've made don't cost a lot of money. They're more about just like implementing a, a good cleaning schedule, writing an SOP for that, for example. So that's something that we did a number of years ago to really make sure that everybody on our farm knew how to clean and sanitize our direct food contact services, that that was written down, that it was laminated, that it was posted, and people were trained on it, but then they also had that reminder. So if I wasn't around, they still could do that without me. Uh, so a lot of the food safety changes that we have made have also helped us become better organized and better, um, more efficient. So in our pack shed, that means that we have color, a color-coded system. So green is clean and red is dirty. Red is no food contact. So I have green brushes that we use for cleaning our food contact surfaces. I have red brushes for cleaning non-food contact or very dirty surfaces. Uh, I will do that with, with other things kind of throughout our pack shed so that um, it's really easy for people to, to kind of follow the rules because they're, they're organized and they're color-coded. It also just uh, helps us uh, communicate less, right? So even if I have signs posted, if things are color-coded and there's a place for them and people know where their place is, there's just a lot less uh, ways for people to go wrong. 
so a lot of improvements in the pack shed. I would say, you know, drainage, we've made that a priority to to do that well and to figure that out and make sure that our drains are getting cleaned. And we have very heavy soil, clay soil. So we often have a lot of sediment that we'll need to clean out of our drains after the water goes through. So having that be part of our end of day routine is important. I wanted to talk about Cantaloupe. We have made quite a few changes with how we handle cantaloupe over the years. We initially used to wash it in our brush washer, and we had sponge rollers as part of our brush washer. And after we went to change the sponge rollers and saw how really disgusting they were, actually, we made a change and swapped out. Uh, the sponge roller unit for a brush slinger unit. So that is just uh, the black plastic bristle brushes. Um, and they, I honestly, I can't tell a difference between the, the sponge rollers and the bristles, but they're much easier to clean. And that was something that I think that we pursued some uh, money through the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. I think there was a 25% cost share available. So we were able to get a little bit of money to help us make that change. So that was a more expensive change. That was, I think, $1,000. But many of the other changes we've made, like adding portable hand washing stations around the farm, having one in our greenhouse, having one at our farmer's market stand, having one in a field that's really far away from our uh, our pack shed where we have our plumbed in hand washing sink. Those are very low cost and that has really helped us improve our food safety practices in a really big way for a pretty low effort and pretty low cost. We started using sanitizer in our wash water for a number of years now, we've been doing that. And we use the Sanidate 5.0 product. And I really appreciate that because we can use it for also sanitizing our food contact surfaces or any surfaces in our pack shed. If we want to do a sanitizing rinse at the end, we can do that with Sanidate at a different level than what we use in our wash water. So it's dual purpose. It's both for our wash water and both for our surfaces. And uh, a lot of people ask me about the expense of it. And I, you know, it's something that is actually pretty low cost when I think about it, because we're able to use, I don't think we even went through five gallons last year. So I may be able to make it through, you know, two seasons. And for reference, we're farming around five acres of vegetables. I'm using sanitizer in most of our uh, bulk tanks. So when we're we're dunking things, we're always using sanitizer because that's a pretty, so we know that is a higher risk uh, way to wash things, um, doing that batch washing together. Uh, so now for to get back to cantaloupes, I, I merged away once I started talking about our, our brush washer. So for cantaloupes, I actually will try to not wash those now. 
we will, when we harvest them, we try to harvest them dry and then we wipe off if there's any dirt on the the melon itself. We'll try to wipe that off with uh, our hands or with a gloved hand and get that off and then actually just not wash it. And most of the time that's fine. If we're having a really wet and muddy season and I do need to wash it, then I just do a single pass. So I'm using a hose and I'm spraying the cantaloupes individually. It takes a bit of time. But it just with the risk that I know about cantaloupes, I really at this point, I don't feel comfortable putting them in a bulk tank. And I don't want to run them through my brush washer because they are brush washers are difficult to clean. So um, that is one practice that we've changed on our farm. And, you know, not washing also saves me time. So if I'm able to do that and keep the quality of the product and keep the cleanliness of it, I am saving our crew some time and increasing efficiency for us as well. So I could go on. There's, there's lots of things that we've done over the years, but those are some of the, the big things that I'm, that I can think of. Very cool. What is, what would you say one of the most like exciting changes is that you've made? Well, you know, one of the most exciting things for me in the pack shed is concrete. So anytime that we can add concrete and drainage, it just really minimizes the lifting. It makes it easier to clean. I know concrete is, so that's a big change, right? That's a, that's a bigger expense, but we have built our pack shed in stages over the life of our farm. And so we've added on little by little. And so, you know, we can, we can set aside $5,000 a year to put down a concrete slab and put in some drainage and kind of do it little by little. So I like to, you know, let growers know that like they, they can do this. Um, it does take a little bit of investment. Of course, you're probably not going to put concrete in if you're in a rental situation, um, but maybe you can talk to who you're renting from and, and talk about splitting that cost. So um, that's something that I just, I just love because then I can use wheels to my advantage in the pack shed. Uh, but the, the hand washing stations, I think, you know, having a hand washing station behind the booth at our farmer's market, that was something that really was um, such a game changer because we had to go and walk quite a ways for people to go inside and use a bathroom. And so, um, you know, being able, we had a pretty, uh, we, we would have typically five to six people working at our farmer's market stand. We sold at a farmer's market in Minneapolis for 15 years. And, you know, there were folks handling money. There were people who were eating. There was a lot of practices that on the farm we have rules about washing our hands, but we didn't have, I didn't think about how we were going to enforce those rules at market. So, you know, super low cost and easy to have a hand washing station. And it also just gave me a sense of relief of knowing how much we were handling and touching the produce that um, we could do that with, you know, that everybody had clean hands and we were coming in with that kind of basic food safety covered. 
Totally back to basics. I speaking of hand washing, I feel like this is a great time to bring up Annalisa's great hand washing station that she has devised. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Maybe where people could find resources on such things. Yeah, so we developed a number of years back um, a model for a portable hand washing stand, and to be clear you could have a hand washing stand just on the back of your truck bed. You could have it in a, in a van if it's going out to the field. Um, but this is something that's semi-portable, but also just might be on the edge of a field and stay there. It might be next to a porta potty, for example. So it's just a small stand that has a spot for a dish pan to go to slide in and becomes a drawer and that drawer holds the paper towels. And then there's a tank, just like a seven gallon water tank that you might buy at a camping store, Home Depot, that kind of a place. Those are running about $20 these days for that blue plastic tank. And then that gets put on top of that stand on a tabletop. And then you might use like a bungee cord to kind of strap it down. And that's it. Have a garbage can and have soap there for your employees to use. But especially next to porta potties, it's a really good idea. And then anywhere that you might just want to add some hand washing capacity to your farm, especially if you've got kind of those areas that aren't super close to the house. So sometimes people say, well, we just run back to the house. But like Laura said, they have them kind of scattered throughout the farm because if it's going to be a 10 minute walk back to the house, you're you're likely not going to take time to do that. And you don't want to pay your employees to be walking for 20 minutes to wash their hands if they encounter some rabbit poop in the field or if they're on their phone, you know, during harvest. So it saves time in the end to have that hand washing available to them. Yeah. And the solutions can be quite simple. Yeah. Really inexpensive inexpensive. So if, you know, the, we used to say it's a $20 hand washing stand, but you know, <laughs> now the, the tank itself is going to be 17 or 20, you know, you can use scrap lumber, um, for sure. So maybe you're looking at a $30 total investment. Mm-hmm. And so when we're using that model and because we need them to be more portable, I'll have a tote I'll have a clean tote that we just flip upside down and put the blue uh, water container on that so we can keep it keep it off the ground. So that has been a way for us to so we don't have to haul around the wooden uh, the wooden frame that it goes in, which is great if it's going to stay in one place. Great. Well, my next question is to both of you. So what advice would you give to a grower interested in better food safety management, but they might not know where exactly to start? I can go first. Um, I would I would suggest, not surprisingly, as the food safety educator, um, <laughs> to just learn, to, to seek out some training. I think that some of this is self-evident, but not all of it is. And I will say that you may have been working on a farm for 10 years. Let's say you uh, worked on a farm that was managed by someone else. Maybe they didn't have good food safety practices. So it's possible that you learned some bad habits, for example. And that's you, you maybe think, well, that's just how things are done. After I've seen, you know, after we harvest our kale, we always just put it on the ground and then someone else comes back later and, and bundles it. Well, 
that's it's not really a great practice. Now it's just gotten much more potential for contamination and just more dirt on it, right? So that they said, well, that's why that's how we've always done it, and that's how my mentors in the past have done it. Well, and you know, if you learn a little bit, you might make some different decisions. So I would say just definitely seeking out some training and then um, talking to other farmer uh, other farmers who have used these kind of practices and thought through the implementation because the training's just the first start, right? That's kind of like identifying risks is really what we focus on all through employee health and hygiene. So hand washing and then water. We haven't really talked about water, but what uh, risks water might pose. So, you know, surface water versus well water and ways to reduce risks there, animals and pets and livestock and um, manure use and soil amendments, and then that post-harvest washing. So kind of going through all those categories, talking about risks that might arise and then ways to reduce them. And then talk to a, a neighbor, a friend, another farm and say, gosh, you know, they talked about sanitizer use. Where do you get it? How do you use it? Do you have a sample SOP for me to use? can be so helpful. Yeah, I would echo everything Annalisa said. I hear from growers that food safety feels really overwhelming to them, especially initially as they are learning about it. So taking a GAPS class, I think a GAPS class is a good way to start, especially for smaller farms, because that will help you figure out, you know, Every farm is different, so what do I need to work on on my farm? And uh, I really like to say, you know, small changes every year add up. It doesn't have to cost a lot. And if you really start with just some of the basics like Annalisa talked about, so making sure you're talking about food safety with people who are working on your farm and who are harvesting, making sure that you have hand washing available making sure that you have a toilet facility that's really easy for people to use. Uh, some of these, you know, handling manure if you're using it and how, how do you do that appropriately and, and keeping the chickens out of your hoop house or out of your fields. So some of these very basic things that don't cost a lot of money are great ways to really reduce a lot, a lot of risk on our farms. Um, so that would be... Um, my recommendation as well, and hopefully there's some, some good agricultural practices trainings that folks can hop on if they haven't uh, done that before. Definitely. And there's a lot of trainings that happen. So you can go and search in your local area, your extension, wherever you might find food safety trainings. There's also the National GAPS course hosted by Cornell. So that's an online three-week course. Um, we, I actually usually get grants to pay for some number of farmers in our state to take that. Um, you know, it is a few hundred dollars for that course, but if that was something that you were looking for, if, if it wasn't available to you locally in your state, you could look into that National GAPS class by Cornell. Very cool. Well, are there any final uh, tips, tricks, or sentiments either of you have that you would like to leave our listeners with before we end our session? Um, I would say just don't be scared of food safety. Don't think that uh, since some of the regulation can be can sound pretty confusing and potentially even scary. Uh, you know, burying your head in the sand and saying, eh, I don't really want to deal with any of that isn't a great way to approach it. 
because frankly, if there was an outbreak traced back to your farm, <laughs> you saying, well, I, I didn't learn anything about it and therefore didn't really implement good practices, that's not going to be protective for your farm. Um, and even, you know, most of us, the vast, vast, vast majority of us aren't going to have an outbreak, obviously, but I think the benefits of food safety of having product that lasts longer on the shelf and having kind of a better working environment for your um, employees and just kind of better functioning, more efficient, kind of more organized can be felt really in the short term. Laura has talked really eloquently about that in the past at our trainings because she's a farmer trainer. All of our GAPS trainings and our FISMA trainers have trainings, have farmer trainers as presenters. So she's able to talk about employee training, especially as a really good upfront investment. So I think that's a great place to start for people. Right, right. I would, yeah, I would say, you know, this doesn't have to be hard. And um, a lot of it is, is really easy, low cost changes that, that people can make. And maybe you'll find out you're actually doing a lot of this on your farm already. Uh, I think people are surprised um, by that. So um, yeah, don't get overwhelmed. Um, you know, don't don't get stressed out by it. It's just one more part of, of running a good business. And it overlaps with so much that we're already doing in terms of um, organization and efficiency and worker training and just quality product. So it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we are, we are in a time where buyers know about food safety and there is awareness both on an individual consumer level and at an institutional level. So we are not a GAP certified farm. We actually don't cover, or we are a qualified exempt farm under the FISMA Modernization Act. I feel like I can meet most of the, the regulations or the rules. I can meet those on a small farm without a lot of extra time and cost. And our local school district where we sell product to is now asking all of their growers for a food safety plan this year. So food safety is really, really important for us to do on our farms, but it is also a demand in the marketplace as well. So it's it's a win-win. You can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Food safety is here to stay, they say. <laughs> yes. Very cool. <laughs> yep, I don't think we're going backwards. Right, right. <laughs> and that's a good thing. It's a good thing for all of us. Yeah, I definitely think like, at least also on the individual consumer level, it definitely makes me feel nice to know that that is something that people are thinking about all over the industry. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Annalisa and Laura, thank you so much for joining us today, being a part of the Food Safety Dish. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your practical advice. Yeah, thank you so much. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks yeah, for having us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. For more University of Minnesota Extension food safety resources, information, and upcoming food safety trainings, check out their website at https slash extension.umn.edu slash safety slash growing safe food.
If you're interested in learning more about NFU and the work that we do, check out our website at nfu.org. And thank you to our sponsor. This podcast is supported by the Food and Drug Administration of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a part of a financial assistance award to you 01 fd 006921 totaling a million dollars with 100% funding by FDA HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of nor an endorsement by FDA HHS or the U.S. government. I'm Catherine Kavanaugh and this is the Food Safety Dish. Until next time... <laughs>